Picture this. It's 2013, and classic buddy duo Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson have once again decided to give us a taste of their comedy. Except this time it takes place on Google's campus, and they're participating in an internship program with college grads. Aside from the obvious question of, is it any good, this film, The Internship, provokes thoughts of the modern progressive workplace. But how accurate is it? Maintaining a work-life balance keeps getting harder, but it doesn't have to. This is The Big Balance, a podcast for anyone struggling to stay ahead or even just keep up with work, life, and everything in between. Join us each week for practical advice you can actually apply to get a little sanity back in your day. I think that Brian and I, while being pretty silly, try to tackle some serious topics every now and then, and today's episode is not one of them. I think we've earned a not-so-serious episode, at least for me. This is an episode that's more of fun in nature. Wouldn't you agree, Brian? You gotta unwind every once in a while. I think we've earned it. So, with that all said, you watch film a lot? Do you watch movies? I don't even know if we've talked about that before going into the topic. <laughs> no, and this is this is going to be the kind of thing, first I want to say I'm very excited. This is a fun topic. I'm into it. Uh, but no, I would say I have seen probably fewer movies and shows than a lot of people. There are a lot of pop culture references that I flat out don't get, as evidenced by the fact that uh, I think for every reference I pull out on this show, they're all from like 20 years ago. So I feel like I'm, there's going to be a lot of movies or, or TV shows or whatever that I'm just not going to be familiar with that we talk about. So exciting times. And I think it's fair to say that while being the younger representative of this pod, I don't watch a lot of new movies anymore, it feels like. So maybe some of my selections are going to be a little dated as well. So fair warning, folks, we're not keeping up to date on uh, pop culture. But this is a good action item. Call out anybody listening if there are any movies uh, more recently than John and I are mentioning that uh, you, you think are a fit for the topic. Let us know. Leave us a comment. Send us a tweet, etc. There you go. Excellent. But I don't know how many times we've said that we're not a book review or not a movie review pod, but today we are. <laughs> I stand proudly in front of all of you today to say that my opinion warrants your full attention, and I am, in fact, an expert in the field of American film review, specifically corporate American film review. <laughs> Brian, I'm trying to build some credibility nice. for us, despite the fact that we just crushed it in the last segment. <laughs> I mean, Siskel and Ebert aren't here, so it's Brian and John. That works. There, there you go. Brian and John, right? <laughs> Two thumbs up. Well, you're right. Well, with my credibility firmly established as a film and television critic, we're going to examine a couple films and, and a television program centered around corporate America. I think if that's not some great intersectionality for this pod, then I don't know what is. So, Brian, without spoiling too much of today's episode, can you give me one film that comes to mind right when I say, like, an office film or something? And I think I know the answer. Yeah, well, clearly. It's the one that we talk about every other episode, which is, again, from many years ago, office space for me. And that only seems fair that we do talk about that in context today. So it's not just like, hey, did you ever see office space? We'll talk about office space a little bit. Just calling it out right up front. So I think as a viewer, it's pretty easy to allow ourselves to engage in that willful suspension of disbelief, but I'll fully admit, I can't get past uh, some minor details, and I tend to get caught up in those and nitpick at certain things. And I think as I've progressed in my corporate career, 
it's harder and harder to let things just be in movies. So for today's episode, I thought it was a fun episode to where we review the accuracy of these programs. And if they're using the office setting or the corporate America as the backdrop, I think we can speak to it pretty adeptly. Art imitates life, and film and television has certainly taken hold of the collective imagination for well over a century now, so it's no surprise why we have films and television series like The Office and Office Space. Sometimes the filmmakers try to capture that true essence of the mundane corporate life many of us lived before the pandemic, but other times it goes a little bit overboard and has a woman shaving her head for $10,000 in the middle of the workplace. Let's put these works of fiction through the litmus test. Before we dive into the fun part, I think we should try and paint a picture of what our modern workplace looks like, Brian. It's all under the assumption that we're still in 2019 and we didn't have any like world-altering event that happened. I don't know what that would be, but let's just assume we're in 2019. So how would you describe office culture at a high level? I feel like this is one of those things where people don't neatly fall into archetypes, but... In the office environment, I feel like there there definitely are real archetypes. Like you got the smug, cocky sales guy. You have the uh, no offense to the older generation. You have the older people who don't quite understand technology, trying to to muck <laughs> things up around the office and can't get the printer to work. Uh, you ha you have that nervous intern, and all of these roles, all of these archetypes, I feel like have always been present in the companies I work for. So, uh, yeah, I think. For me, the slice of life book or movie or TV show that is working in an office is all about uh, character development. That's a really right? good way to put it, and I hadn't even considered that when I was thinking in my head what I would consider office culture. So I'm going to start using that. Those archetypes are, are, are perfect. Yeah. So I think for me, the culture isn't necessarily the culture, quote, or the mood or the personality of a specific office. It's something that extends beyond one workplace to the next. It's the unwritten rules of the office. It's how you draft your emails. It's how you call clients. It's how you interact with your superiors. It's all of these things and more wrapped up into a neat little package that we call office culture. It's pretty easy to become cynical about office culture in general, but each workplace has their own unique nuances and intricacies. So I want to be clear that our reviews today are going to be based on our own experience with office culture and should be taken as more anecdotal than anything. I think it's safe to say we're not organizational psychologists for one thing. It's also worth mentioning that much of my experience with corporate America, and this probably echoes a lot of people's sentiments, is it's a bureaucracy, too. I picture Hermes from Futurama, one piece of paper going to another desk for approvals and so on and so forth. Is that a reference you recognize, Brian? I, I will constantly make reference to the, you're about to get a letter from the central bureaucracy. <gasps> a letter from the central bureaucracy. Remember that scene? That I, I will always <laughs> reference that because I, I hate, I hate, office politics. I hate bureaucracy. And I will call people out for doing bureaucratically nonsensical bull in the office. And that's that's the gif I pull out and send via chat or email when they do. So yes. Well, there you go. We already have painted our bias up front because I, I agree. I don't like the bureaucracy of the office and, and the office politics, which again, fall into that office culture. It's all you know BS to me and I hate to get wrapped up into it. But we have to sometimes. It's it's inevitable. And I think office politics might be the bane of most people's existence in the office. You did point out one additional archetype I forgot about, which is the suck up, fail upwards uh, guy who somehow makes it into upper management by doing nothing. 
So thank you. There you go. So we we did miss one archetype there. So we're going to add that to the list. I think we have a pretty good idea of what our biases and our perspective will be. So a little bit shorter of a first half because I think we're going to spend a lot of time on the second half going through specific films and specific programs. So enjoy this nice little break. And then when we get back, let's get to work because the weekend's over and now it's time to get into full gear and you're going to start pushing paper. Okay, Brian, we're ready to review some films. So I'm going to read some synopses to you, and then we're going to talk about what the actual program is. So the first one here. This mockumentary follows the everyday lives of the manager and the employees he manages. The crew follows the employee around 24-7 and captures their quite humorous and bizarre encounters as they do what it takes to keep the company thriving. Do you have any idea of what program I just reference was? I'm assuming The Office. It is The Office. It's set at a paper company in Scranton, Pennsylvania. So somewhat regional for us. It's actually not too far away from Scranton yesterday. Um, so I'm a coworker in Scranton. Yeah, yeah. Right there you go. So it feels pretty close to home for me. So the first thing I will call out is this is meant to be a mockumentary. It's meant to be somewhat of a realistic depiction. Have you seen any episodes, Brian? I've seen all the episodes. Okay, I didn't realize you were a fan, so that makes it no. That yeah, better. that's like that's probably the only reference today that I'm going to be able to speak to with any degree of certainty. So yeah, yeah, good for yeah. starting with that one. A lot of people love it. Obviously, a lot of people love it. There was a whole to do when it got removed from Netflix. There seems to be in this office some dynamics and a lot of camaraderie there that I do feel in the office. So I feel like there's definitely bits of truth in this program. On the whole, though, I don't think I've ever had a boss that is anywhere like Michael Scott. I have worked with people who were very Michael Scott. I, I think this is one of the this is what I love about the Michael Scott character as well. What's believable about him, even though he is absurd, is this notion that the more confident somebody is, the less filter they put on themselves. So one of my favorite personal Michael Scott moments was I had a boss who would just not know the definitions of words. And he would have words that were, they sounded similar, so they probably meant the same thing. Uh, and one example was we had a client that had some greener people, and my boss kept wanting to call them incompetent, kind of like, you know, venting about uh, some frustrations. But he kept saying incontinent. Oh. And he kept going, oh, they, all of these people are, they're so incontinent. Yeah. Everything they do is just incontinence. I'm like, are, are we saying they shit themselves? Like, what's going on here? And it was just all the time he would, he would pull out words that were, they sounded close, no cigar. <laughs> it's so funny. Like, like, just, I can't imagine saying like, man, they just are so incontinent. It's like, that word doesn't mean what you think it does. All the time. And nobody corrected him because he's the boss, by the way. Emperor wears uh, new clothes. It, you need to pull like a princess bride situation to say, <laughs> I keep using that word. I don't think it means right. what you think it means. <laughs> but that that's a really good example. And I think that is probably one of the funnier examples I, I have ever heard of, of a boss like yeah. a Michael Scott. I think for me, I've never worked in that small, small office because it does seem like a smaller paper company, Dunder Mifflin, right? I know they have larger corporate offices, but the office they're working out of reminds me of 
you know, actually, it's not far off from from our old office. Uh, so now that I think about it, yeah, I have worked in a smaller office like that. But the one thing I will say about that office. I think they did a really good job of capturing people's little knickknacks and things like that. They talk about it in all of like the behind-the-scenes stuff, but the little local flair, the things that they have on their cubes, and I think that's pretty accurate. And not a lot of other programs that I've seen really try to get into the minutiae, the details of people's desk spaces. I think even when you watch the show, you can see that some people have solitaire up. Those were real working computers on the set. So people playing solitaire, I, I'm not going to say I've done it at work, but maybe I have. So that seems pretty realistic. So I guess if we're going to come up with a grading scale here, Brian, I guess from one to five, as far as realism factor there, I would say that's probably a solid three to four. Here's where I agree and I disagree. And I think this is, yeah, this is something that it's not the office that does this. It's every TV show that does this. When shows start, you have a relatively balanced character as they kind of progress the show kicks it up a notch and kicks it up a notch to keep it interesting, keep it new. But what you end up having is these well-balanced, rounded characters end up being very galvanized. They end up being almost caricatures of themselves. It's the one trait. That's exactly the word I would use. Yeah, the one trait about them kind of gets kicked into full gear. I think uh, unrelated to unrelated to business theme shows, uh, ever watch Community? I, so I've seen clips. I, I know the majority of the characters and things like that. So yeah, go for it. Well, that, there's a character... Uh, named Britta. She's the love interest of the main character, Jeff. At the start of the show, she's rounded. She's kind of jaded. She's the the cool kid, dropped out of school to go join, I think, the Peace Corps, and, and kind of the anti-establishment character. But by the end of the show, they basically made her into a caricature. They made her into a clown. Everybody was just always ragging on Britta, and her character became just a shell. I don't think that The Office goes quite to that degree, but what I really think is realistic about earlier episodes is that yeah it's there are some people are kind of crazy Stanley Stanley is obviously uh, a little bit caricature but he's also very true very human and it and it kind of feels less realistic as the show goes on for all of them but yeah I would say in the beginning very accurate uh kind of moving down the scale a little bit towards the end to being just sheer comedy And that's fair. And I think there's a reason why most folks will tell you that the first season of The Office is the worst, probably because it's the most representative of real office life. It's pretty boring, I I would say. (laughs) All right. So I think we're in agreement that that's a a nice, you know, the early episodes are nice middle of the road, maybe towards the high end of the realism factor. So, yeah, passes the test in my book. Actually, can I, can I, we can cut this if there's not time for it, but I do want to make one other quick mention as well. Yeah, go for it. So speaking of knickknacks around the office, you were saying they're real computers. Uh, there's other things that are real as well. There's uh, Froggy 101 bumper stickers and, and stickers around. Uh, yep. uh, and that's a real radio station in Pennsylvania up, up in Scranton. So, And they mention it a few times as well, so that's realistic. But it reminded me, have I ever told you the story of my old coworker who went on vacation that we messed with? I, I think I do remember this story, so I'm glad you're telling it again. It's funny. Did I tell it on the show, though? I don't know if you did, and that's what I'm trying to figure out. Either way, preface it by saying we're old men and we repeat ourselves. Yeah. So the first company I worked for out of college, I would say, was more like The Office than any other place I've worked on a scale of uh, one to unprofessional. We would do a lot of pranks on each other in The Office, and one particular coworker who was very involved in this pranking uh, was getting married and going on a honeymoon. 
he was terrified of what we were going to do to his stuff while he was away. Now, we had rolling file cabinets that went under our desks. To make sure we didn't mess with them, he locked his and brought the key with him. Now, the thing about his filing cabinet, just like the Froggy 101 bumper stickers, magnets everywhere in the office, his was covered in magnets and other stuff so that you could clearly tell which one was his. So we spent the better part of, I think, like two hours moving every magnet from his onto one that looked like the rest of ours. Now, let me ask you, you said it took two hours. Was it very meticulous and where you were placing it? Is that why it, it took so long? It was like for like. It was the exact <laughs> same, painstakingly replicated magnets from one file cabinet to the other. Uh, and we locked it so that when he came back, he tried his key, couldn't get it working, shook it, near destroyed it before we all broke down laughing, saying, ha, 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 this is what we did. Now, the prank itself, cheesy, not necessarily great, probably boring to listen to on the show. But what was interesting is he said, guys, what's actually in here? Because I felt a lot of stuff rattling around. We don't know. We, didn't, we never opened it. Went and got the key, opened it up. There are, I, now that I think about it, I don't know whether I want to say all three of these things because it's a little bit creepy. Oh, uh, now I definitely want to know. <laughs> all right. Thing number one, a stack of credit cards with the same person's name on it. So clearly it was this guy's file cabinet. Stack number two, a lot of ebony porn. Uh, we'll say quite a bit uh, and the creepy thing and I don't even want to know if I want to include this uh, it was a stack of school kid photos black school kid photos that just combined with the other thing in the cabinet kind of weird dude it almost feels like illegal like what you're describing right now this I feel uncomfortable I now. know it was it was very creepy now this was not like we own this building and this was an old co-worker of ours we rented out space from a property management company so whoever's file cabinet that was was long gone at this point we had no idea so didn't really go anywhere with it but uh yeah a little bit creepy and he's like I'm so glad we opened that I was gonna bring this to my in-laws house to force open saying my key stopped oh working and I don't God, know how he would have explained yeah. any of that when they opened it up to his new in-laws right, so serious question who the hell keeps porn in their office I don't know it doesn't seem like the most opportune place to uh to view to act on Not at all. I don't know I have no idea Not at all well, with that bit of disgusting detail out of the way, <laughs> yeah. Uh, let's move on to uh, subject number two, we'll say. Um, so here's the synopsis, Brian. After old school salesman Billy and Nick find themselves downsized, Billy decides that despite their complete lack of technological savvy, they should work for Google. The friends somehow manage to finagle internships at the internet giant and promptly head out to Silicon Valley. Viewed with disdain by most of their fellow interns, Billy and Nick join forces with the rest of the misfit Nooglers to make it through a series of competitive team challenges. I think it's pretty obvious this is the internship because I referenced this at the beginning of the, the show. Brian, have you ever seen this one? I have not. I just recently watched it, which kind of prompted this entire episode. Uh, my fiance really enjoyed it when it came out she told me we watched it recently and i gotta say it doesn't hold up as well i was a bit disappointed and one of the biggest criticisms this movie got is that it felt like an hour and a half ad or commercial for google oh yeah that's, that's pretty point. much yeah and it was 
it felt like really force fed at certain points. Well, that's like that's every cartoon from my childhood, right? Right? Yeah. Like every like Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. Why was that a show? It was so you had basically a toy in front of a kid's face for thirty minutes. No, that's that's uh, a lot of kids programming from the nineties. So I get it. Yep, and maybe that explains <laughs> like the uh, surge in programmers or anything like that afterwards. But uh, no stats to back that up. I will say that Billy and Nick, so Owen Wilson and Vince Vaughn, they're, I don't want to make any judgments because I don't think they say their age in the movie, but they're like 40 and and up. And they're on a team of interns with like 22-year-olds. Some of them I think are underage in the movie. So the realism factor there is going down a little bit for me because I've never worked with an older intern. Not to say they don't exist, but for somebody to make a career change like that at their age, after they were salesmen for years, it just doesn't seem realistic to me. I don't know who would make that type of career change. So off to a bad start there. Inauspicious to say the least. Another thing I want to touch on in that synopsis there is they go through a series of competitive team challenges. The way that they frame this internship is basically like a game show. You have like four challenges that you need to complete, and then the winning team all gets jobs at Google. That's not how internships work, and I want to be very clear for any interns who are listening right now. It's not a competition like that. Sounds like frat hazing. Yes, exactly, and a lot of it in there kind of did mirror hazing, which brings up a good point maybe there is slight hazing if you will in to newbies in the office maybe i I don't want to go down that rabbit hole right now but some people when they join a new office get a little razzing here and there but to the degree that these two get no nowhere i've never seen it well there's actually a very dark dark rabbit hole when it comes to the idea of hazing uh not just corporate wide but specifically in tech specifically in the silicon valley Mm. Um, i don't know if that makes this movie more or less realistic but uh i do know there is very much a bro culture a very frat kind of culture in a number of silicon valley companies to the great detriment of the people working there who don't kind of fit the mold which funny you bring that up because uh owen wilson and vince vaughn's characters are kind of more of like the bros in the uh the intern group and everyone else is just these caricatures of people who are into programming and nerds and things like that i mean it's it's cinema it's film it's art whatever you want to call it You have to make these characters representative of larger groups of people. But most people aren't that one-dimensional. You don't find somebody who's only into tech and will only talk to you about programming languages and SQL and stuff like that. That doesn't happen. So that's one area where, not even this movie, most movies kind of make one-dimensional characters for the sake of being representative of a specific personality trait. Again, another check off the box there, another point to bring them down, I would say. I think the big thing I do want to touch about this movie, though, is the office space that they're working in. They show them in, like, nap pods and go into different, like, open office environments and things like that. And I want to say, from what I've heard about Silicon Valley, that's not far off. So there might be some realism factors there. There's a, yeah, that especially in Google, you hear about a lot of company perks and how great the office is and all the features and amenities that you get. I personally have a problem, not a problem, it's great that they're offered, but I look at that a little bit warily, and especially in the space of this show, a lot of these amenities, a lot of these features that companies like Google offer, a lot of it is to keep you working, keep you in the office. You know, if I can get my dinner in the cafeteria for free, if I can get my dry cleaning done, hey, I got a masseuse coming by in a couple minutes to give me a massage. All of these things help me stay at my desk working because the other parts of my life are taken care of. Well, 
that's the antithesis of a work-life balance to me, right? Things are getting taken care of for you, but it's also you can just stay at your desk and keep working, and that doesn't seem healthy either. Yeah, and when you frame it that way, it seems very nefarious. Yeah. That's the very much a side, side tangent for the episode, so we'll keep going. But. <laughs> well, I think overall, since you haven't seen the movie, based on what I've described, would you feel comfortable giving this movie, we'll say, a 2 out of 5 for the realism factor? Yeah, I, I think the interesting thing you say in terms of the one-dimensional characters, uh, that's going to draw it down. And I do want to kind of take a step back, go back to the office. When it comes to, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna compare it to brushing teeth, right? Everybody brushes their teeth, but you never see that in movies. Why? Because well, it doesn't feel relevant, and we have a runtime. I don't know much about the premise of this movie beyond what you just told me, but they have a goal. They're at, down on their luck, lost their jobs, trying to get in on Google. I'm sure they face some kind of adversity and hijinks happen along the way. That's a lot of stuff that has to happen. There's not time for really fleshing out characters as real people. And you compare that to The Office, where it is about character development and character analysis. That's the difference that makes this movie a little bit less realistic sounding to me because it's the people that make the office and it's the activity and action that makes this movie. It sounds like. And that's a really good point, And one that I think we probably should get out in front of is that television and film to your point, there's run times involved with both of them, but with television, you have a little bit longer of a lead. You have a longer leash and you can explore some individual characters as opposed to, a movie where, in this case, we have to focus on Vince Vaughn and Owen Wilson pretty much exclusively and their relationships with other folks. So that's a good point to bring up, and we'll keep that in mind when we're scoring this realism factor, as I'm calling it. All right, next synopsis. This one you might be familiar with, but I want to call out that this isn't wholly centered on an office, but there are some very important scenes that take place in an office. So it's 1987 and Jordan Belfort takes an entry-level job at a Wall Street brokerage firm. By the early 1990s, while still in his 20s, Belfort has found his own firm, Stratton Oakmont. Together with his trusted lieutenant and a merry band of brokers, Belfort makes a huge fortune by defrauding wealthy investors out of millions. However, while Belfort and his cronies partake in hedonist brew of sex, drugs, and thrills, the SEC and the FBI close in on his empire of excess. Yep, it's the Wolf of Wall Street, Brian. Have you seen it? Yeah, and I was going to say, depending on how much coke hookers and midgets are in it, it's either The Wolf of Wall Street or Boiler Room, so now I know. Boiler Room's another good example, right? The the whole, like, brokerage thing, right? Well, I think they're both based on the same guy, same story. Gotcha, did not know that. So there you go, Boiler Room and Wolf of Wall Street, both Jordan Belfort. Wolf of Wall Street was a very popular movie, so I'm sure a lot of our listeners are already familiar with it, so I'm not going to get too deep into the details of what Jordan goes through. But there's one specific scene that always sticks out to me. Actually, probably two, since you mentioned the little people being thrown. There's a scene where the office is basically a frat party, and they hired little people to throw them onto a bullseye with, like, a Velcro suit. So they're throwing these little people on there, and it's just a big old party in the office. We've all had happy hours and parties in the office, but I've never seen anything to that degree. So that seems a bit unrealistic. But from what we're told, this is based on Jordan's own recollection. So it does happen. I still don't buy it. Yeah, I mean, it's yes, I'm sure there is a lot of embellishment on one hand. But on the other one, this is the one entry that actually is based on a real guy. And this might be where, yeah, Wolf of Wall Street is 
comically outrageous. Uh, and so I'm sure a lot of it did happen. And I think the boiler room is a bit more realistic in the way they portrayed it. But it actually did happen. And kind of like I said earlier on, when you have somebody who thinks they are on top of the world, they're not necessarily trying to stay in anybody else's confines. You know, if you think you are just hot shit in the champagne glass, you don't care about SEC rules. You don't care about office politics. You're drinking champagne, doing coke off a hooker, and throwing a midget. I'm sorry, a little person. So it's, you know, uh, yeah, I could totally see that happening in that bro environment where you think you will never get caught. Yeah, and to that point, Jordan Belfort was like Icarus who flew too close to the sun, right? You, yeah. you eventually, you, you think that you're untouchable or it's impossible to get caught. That being said, if he never got caught, we probably wouldn't know these stories. So, hey, eh, kind of glad it happened, you know, because it didn't happen to me. <laughs> But there's one other specific scene that really sticks out to me. And from what I've read or from what I've heard, this actually did happen. They paid a woman in the office, I think it was $10,000 to shave her head in the middle of the office. I don't know what parties are going on in New York in the 90s, but that sounds wild. And I've never seen anything like that. I'd totally do it. I mean, I'm a guy. I guess it's not as big a deal, but I'm almost ready to shave my head now because I'm balding. So uh, (laughs) yeah, I'll shave it for 10 grand if you want to give it to me. There you go. So with that, as far as scoring this one, I think you and I are kind of touching on it right now. If it's embellished, it's based off of somewhat of a true story. So I'm going to say the jury's out, and I don't even think we can score this one. Is that a cop-out? I mean, it's anywhere from a one to a four. Uh, again, Wolf yeah. of Wall Street to Boyle Room, it's a one to four. There you go. There you go. I like combining both of them, right? I will say that uh, boss I had earlier, the one who referred to people as incontinent, he was a giant giant boiler room fan we were an outsourced sales organization so he had this like romanticized view of these people who could sell ice to eskimos and just bring in money based on the backs of the quote-unquote incontinent buyers out there uh so (laughs) that's gonna make me laugh forever now (laughs) yeah um so i i guess maybe part of what makes me view Boiler Room as more realistic is, hey, I actually had a boss who didn't whole cloth build a company around the concept of defrauding people. It was a legit business, but he definitely romanticized the characters and the the push to to make money at, at, at all expense, right? Yeah, and I struggle with the efficacy of having that type of attitude, we'll say. I... I rarely ever find myself being drawn to those types of people like the glamorize the hustle and the grind and we're always working towards making sales and things like that. It never struck a chord with me the same way maybe it does with other people or maybe with that guy you described. I I, I don't like hustle culture either. I'm shocked that we haven't done an anti-hustle culture episode yet, to be completely honest. Well, funny you mentioned that, Brian, because in a couple weeks we will. Oh, is that on the books? Okay. There you go. So I should check the schedule. Yeah, no, you're all right. <laughs> no, it's a good topic. I'm, I look forward to it. Then. You, me too. Me too. All right. Program number four. We have two more left. Get ready for this one. Andy is a recent college graduate with big dreams. Upon landing a job at a prestigious runway magazine, she finds herself the assistant to the diabolical editor, Miranda Priestley. Andy questions her ability to survive her grim tour as Miranda's whipping girl without getting scorched. Do you know the devil wears Prada, Brian? I put two and two together just from the word diabolical and the word scorched. 
uh, both being a little bit on the sinister side. I, I guessed it was going to be that. I, I've never seen it. It's pretty on the nose, too. With, with it's, Is that too on the nose to put diabolical and scorch within the, the synopsis there? And you're, you're not trusting your viewers to put two and two together. You're, you're a little bit hand-holding right there. Yeah, yeah it's a little uh, you know, hitting you on the head with that. It's a devilishly good sign. <laughs> All right, we get it. Yeah, well, The Devil Wears Prada is actually my fiance's favorite movie or one of her favorite movies, and I'll fully admit I have gotten sucked into watching it more than once. Um, it's it's a fun movie. I like it. And the one big thing I want to touch on here is Andy, Anne Hathaway's character, is a recent college graduate, and I think she has a degree in like English or writing, something like that. She wants to work for a magazine or work for a publication. So she gets thrown into this whole other world, the, the fashion world, to which she really has no real desire to be involved in. But as she works more and more with Miranda, who's based off of Anna Wintour from uh, Vogue, I think is that what it is, right? As she works with her more and more, she starts to adapt her personality a little bit and starts to adopt some of the traits from Miranda. And I think that's one thing that not a lot of people realize consciously, but we are doing that pretty often. I always hearken back to a conversation that me and my fiance had when I first started a job where I was doing a lot more negotiations and and had to be a little bit tougher on certain things, uh, especially when it came to like contracts and things like that. I found myself bringing that into my personal life and started doing that when we were watching movies like, oh, nope, that's not real. Oh, I can't get past that. Nope, you need to fix that. And Rachel called me out for it and was like, you know, you've been pretty nitpicky and nasty lately. So I never really considered how my job can change my personality, but it does. And I think most people don't realize that that is an unintended side effect of working for certain people. I forget who it was who said there's a motivational speaker uh, and I guess anybody listening or John, you can Google this as I'm speaking it. There was somebody who said that we are the average of the five people we spend the most time with. So, yeah, that totally makes sense, especially when you are an intern and your entire goal of being at an org is to learn the ropes and understand how you should conduct yourself. Yeah, you're going to absorb other people. And Jim Rohn or Jim Ron, I think is his name, if I'm pronouncing that correctly. There you go. So I did I did Google it. So you're which means God help me. You and Andy are two people I spend a lot of time with. So you're both part of part of me now. And isn't that a little bit sad? Oh, boy, boy. Yeah, I feel bad for our wives. right? Uh, and the more people listen to our show, the more of us seep into them. So keep oh, listening. You get more we, like Are we me. that full of hubris that we think people actually are adopting yes. our personality traits? <laughs> yes. I mean, the whole point of this pod is for us to give you some actionable advice. Uh, so if you are taking some notes out of our book, then all the better. We're doing our job. If you're not, we hope you're still enjoying the ride. <laughs> but to get back to The Devil Wears Prada, this is another one that takes place in New York City, Manhattan. And I think a lot of uh, films centered around corporate world and corporate life always default to New York. And it makes sense. It's what we consider our epicenter of commerce and hubs in the U.S. So I get that. But I want to call out that it seems like at least from my experience or my perspective, it seems like New York hustle and New York corporate life and New York work feels so different than anywhere else. Do you get that same feeling? I think yes, but I think a lot of it is kind of an image thing. Mm -hmm. And I'll kind of compare it to when I was going through school. I went I went to school for marketing and advertising. A lot of ad firms in Philly, Philly has this sixth borough inadequacy complex <laughs> where the main strategy was, hey, you want to get into marketing and advertising? Go work for a New York firm for a couple of years. Come back here. You get any job you want in Philly. 
is it true or not? I don't. I've, I've had clients in New York. I've spent time working in the city. Yeah, things can be a bit busy, but I don't think it's necessarily hugely different. I would say really West Coast, East Coast, all North to South is pretty homogenous from my perspective. The only place that's really been very different is the Deep South. They do take a more measured pace. Uh, it, it seems, I've heard that too. It's just everything goes a little slower down there, right? So to score the Devil Wears Prada, and I didn't mention this earlier, but this is based off of somebody else's experience as well. This is supposed to be, I don't want to call it a memoir, but it's a fictionalized take on their experience uh, at a magazine. So I can't comment on this industry at all. But based on what I saw in the office, they had people who were working the front desk who also was responsible for going and getting coffee or replacing things in the office. I would say that regard or that respect is pretty accurate. So I feel comfortable giving this a three somewhere right in the middle there. It feels pretty realistic, but because of the industry that it's focused on, I have to imagine there was a lot of liberties taken for a better story. Well, here's my thing. I'm going to take this in another dark direction. I'm going dark this episode. Oh, right. really didn't mean. I thought it was going to be a fun, lighthearted episode. And, I'm getting and we're recording. It's a nice, beautiful day outside right now. So Brian's just bringing the I mood know. down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, let's go from hazing rituals in tech to big issue. I and I know a lot of people have with the concept of unpaid internships as well. Now, when we look at the setting, New York, always very glamorized, working for a magazine, very glamorized, fashion, very glamorized. So you have all these things that make it seem like a glamorous place to be, thing to do. And that's really painting over what I view as a very negative element of internships. Again, I went to school for marketing and a lot of internships in the advertising world are unpaid. Now, that was fine for me. I had a side job at the same time. I could afford to take an unpaid internship while going to school. A lot of other people have parents who kind of pay their way through school and any expenses they need. And then you have another group of people who are working full-time, supporting a family, don't have the money to be able to say, yeah, I'm going to devote four to six hours a day at an internship that gives me mm -hmm. no pay. So what's the end result of all this? Well, we're building up industries that are by design exclusive of people from lower socioeconomic status groups, right? Because if the only people who can afford to take these internships have family money or have wealth that allows them to do this, and the only way to get into the industry is by having that internship, well, what does that mean to everybody else? It necessarily closes a door. It makes a country club have an entire industry. And I have a big problem with that personally. Yeah, and I think that is a, a dark side of unpaid internships and I think we could take a moral or political stance against that I'm sure it probably wouldn't take a genius to figure out where we stand on that side of the fence I mean if it's not clear where I stand right now I don't know what to tell yeah you. right but the, the point being I agree with you 100% it's a self-perpetuating industry there you're it, again to use the word nefarious it feels nefarious so I yeah I don't have a, a solution for that but definitely something to be mindful of I agree all right, and we teased it at the top of the show. It's time for office space. So corporate drone Peter Givens hates his soul-killing job at software company Inatech. While undergoing hypnotherapy, Peter is left in a blissful state when his therapist dies in the middle of their session. He refuses to work overtime, plays games at his desk, and unintentionally charms two consultants into putting him on the management fast track. When Peter's friends learn they're about to be downsized, they hatch a revenge plot against the company inspired by Superman 3. 
Yeah, this is one of my favorites, Brian. I think it's one of your favorites as well. Oh, definitely. This is one of those movies, it's old. It shows its age to a degree, but it's so uh, accurate. This continuum we're scoring on, this is at the top of that because it's just, yeah, okay, yeah, the, the fraud scheme probably doesn't happen that often. But it's still, the rest of the movie is so slice of life. It's never going to not be appropriate. I could watch it all the time. Yep, and you beat me to the punch. I was going to score this a five without even really going into much detail because, I mean, case in point, it's a movie made from 99, and we're still referencing it on a pod in 2022, and we're the consultants, actually, in this situation. We're the bobs in most instances. So it's it's interesting seeing the other side of it. But I relate to Peter so much in the, no, I don't want to work overtime, or I just want to sit at my desk and play games, and I want to just try to schmooze as much as I can with unintentionally schmoozing, I guess. But Peter, to me, is so representative of everyone in that dead-end, not even middle management job, that not entry level, but you know, middle of the road job that's just kind of dead-end. I totally get it, and I think we all go through that, I guess we'll call it the conundrum in our head to where we justify how much time we're spending at the office versus what it grants us and the freedoms and things like that. So, yeah, I don't I don't have an answer for the fix for Peter other than try to carve out some space in your company to maybe uh, play games on your computer or charm two consultants. No, I obviously, I, I have nothing but good words to say about the realism of this movie with the exception of a handful of scenes like obviously Milton and his stapler you don't send people to the basement to work by themselves but you do have people getting moved around the fact that they're discussing downsizing or laying people off these are real concerns that everybody has at least once in their corporate career so to that end five out of five for this movie here's the thing that makes it extra realistic to me and let's really talk about everything we've reviewed so far in this episode and not even this just episode, I think just TV shows and movies in general, all of these settings, these backdrops for these jobs people have, a lot of them are kind of exceptional, right? You have a lot of dramas about uh, what it means to work in a hospital, in an ER where people are facing life-threatening critical injuries and illnesses. You have police procedurals, all of these things about exceptional jobs you can get. But we're not working them. I mean, let's be honest. Yep. How many people have an off show of hands out there listening? How many people have jobs that they're not a passion project, right? Most of us are working jobs because we need to earn a paycheck to support ourselves. We're not working at a company because it's our life calling. But all of these movies, all of these TV shows, they're all based on this idea of a calling and the shenanigans that ensue related to it. But what the office does well, office space does well, they're just common companies. They're, they're people working a job because they got to work a job. And that, that's what makes it realistic to me, right? 100%. And I didn't even realize until I was preparing for this episode that the name of the company that Peter works for is Inatech. That, to me, is one of the most realistic-sounding company names in any movie ever. <laughs> like, I feel like I've worked with but, and Inatech. That's, that's the joke. That's the joke. You have Inatech. And then where do Michael and Samer go after? Intertrode. <laughs> so it's, it's I just, forgot that. That's just how that's how '90s tech companies were named. So yeah. Yep. Well, Brian, I, I think you're spot on there. Uh, I really don't have much more to say about Office Space other than what we've already said ad nauseum on this pod. We've referenced it probably at least once a month at this point. And for good reason, because it's a good place for people to start to get an understanding of what corporate culture can be like for those who aren't necessarily ingrained in it or for those who think they may have a different perspective. It gives you an idea of what the collective consciousness kind of thinks of office work. 
for that reason, obviously we gave it a five out of five. I'm going to give it an extra point and say it's a six out of five because that movie rules and I still just can't get it out of my head that that's, that's life for most people. I'm going to give it an additional seven out of five for one very specific reason as well. And I actually have a bonus movie that I want to bring to the mix as well that Perfect. you didn't mention. Um, but the additional Brian one point, everything that we're talking about is kind of reactive, right? These characters are reacting to the crazy things that they're dealing with. But I feel like Office Space has almost like a perverse aspirational quality to it as well, where it's not just saying, man, let's all commiserate about the crappy office jobs we have. What Peter goes through, the whole idea of, I don't care anymore. <laughs> that, like I said, it's, it's a bit perverse, but there is an aspirational quality to it where when you're looking at all the crap we go through, all the bureaucracy, all the, the office politics of our jobs that we go through, wouldn't it be nice just to say, you know what? I don't care about any of that. I, I'm not going to get anything really accomplished coming in working on a Sunday for Lumberg. So I'm just going to not do it because the world's going to keep spinning because all I'm doing is pushing paper at my company anyway. We all want that level of freedom. We all want that level of confidence and assuredness that it doesn't matter because at the end of the day, he's right. It really doesn't. Yep. All of our companies will keep going if we don't come in on a Sunday afternoon. The world won't stop turning. Yeah, and I wish I could have that, you know, effort attitude. To to quote Lumberg, it'd be great, you know? <laughs> so, That'd be great. Yeah, I wish, I wish I could do that. So hit me with your bonus movie. So one movie that I feel like, it's not necessarily an office job movie, but it has that same perv super perversely aspirational element to it. I'm going to go with Fight Club, and how's that for kind of a, a curveball? Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I, I, yeah, you know what? I didn't even consider that, but there is some important scenes yeah. in those offices. Yeah, I mean, let's let's talk about the, the high-level superficial element of Fight Club. A bunch of guys are, I guess I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to super gloss over it. Uh, a bunch of guys who are generally down in their luck decide to get into an underground boxing club, and fighting ensues, so on and so forth. And it goes spiraling out of control from there. But really... The core themes of the book, of the movie, is that we live in the, and, and this is another quote uh, that I pull out all the time in the office or anywhere, is a lot of the stuff that we do to kind of keep up society as we know it, it's just polishing brass on the Titanic. It doesn't really matter. And the idea Depressing. that- Huh? Depressing. It is, well, it is depressing, but the other element, and one that is definitely playing out uh, across the country, across the world, really, from about two years now, this whole great resignation. Big theme of that movie is you have all of these low-wage, blue-collar workers who individually, they don't have power. And part of what they're raging at, part of why they see the appeal of Fight Club is because it gives them that sense of power. But when they band together, they're actually accomplishing things to challenge the status quo. Now, in the movie, uh, it's all about blowing up uh, a number of buildings and resetting everybody's credit. Uh, but uh, in a more realistic scenario, it's workers recognizing, hey, we do collectively have some strength. And through this great resignation, wages are going up because people are saying, look, I'm not going to settle for a job. Uh, I, I want certain things and I feel like it's incumbent upon my employer to give them to me. So yeah, it's not necessarily a work-related movie, but I think a lot of the themes of Fight Club are appropriate, especially in today's job hiring, job market environment. 
I appreciate that perspective because I've never considered Fight Club anything other than just like, wow, man, what a like a nihilist movie, and, and so a, a very positive spin on the ending of that movie. So I appreciate it. Well, Brian, I got nothing else for you. I think we have firmly established that the most realistic Office movie of all time is, without a doubt, Office Space. And if that wasn't abundantly clear before this episode, make no mistake about it, it's abundantly clear now. So, folks, I hope that this was an enjoyable episode. I I know we don't have much actionable advice today, but this was a fun stroll down memory lane or uh, a fun uh, just conversation with Brian. So appreciate you taking the time to join us. And like Brian mentioned at the top of the show, if there's anything we missed or anything that we could maybe discuss in the future, feel free to let us know. You know all the channels. I'm not even going to say it again. I think we actually do have an action list, though. Go back and binge a lot of TV shows and movies now. There you go. There you go. That That's exactly it. Yeah. Watch these movies. Let us know if our assessment is completely off or if we nailed it. So, yeah. Thanks for listening to the Big Balance Podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and drop us a comment while you're there. Until next time. Daisy!